from the nation's leading supply chain university program, we welcome you to the Penn State Supply Chain Podcast, brought to you by the Center for Supply Chain Research. Here are your hosts, Steve Tracy and Irv Grossman. Uh, today, we'd like to welcome Dr. John Coyle. Dr. Coyle, appreciate you spending time with us today. And I want to want to just uh, give a brief bio of uh, Dr. Coyle and his background. Uh, John J. Coyle is a professor emeritus of logistics and supply chain in the Smeal College of Business at Penn State. He holds a BS and MS from Penn State and earned his PhD from Indiana University in Bloomington, Indiana, where he was a U.S. Steel Fellow. He joined the Penn State faculty in 1961 and attained the rank of full professor in 1967. In addition to his teaching responsibilities, he has served in a number of administrative positions for Penn State, including department head, assistant dean, senior associate dean, special assistant for strategic planning to the university president, and executive director of the Center of Supply Chain Research. He also served as Penn State's faculty representative to the NCAA for 30 years and to the Big Ten for 10 years. Dr. Quill was the editor of the Journal of Business Logistics from 1990 to 96. Um, he also authored or co-authored 25 books or monographs and 38 articles in academic and professional journals. He received 14 awards at Penn State for teaching and or advisory. In addition, he received the Council of Logistics Management, also known as CSCMP, Distinguished Service Award in 1991, the Philadelphia Traffic Club's Person of the Year in 2003, the 2004 Eccles Medal from the International Society of Logistics for his contributions to the Department of Defense, and the 2004 Lion's Paw Medal from Penn State for Distinguished Service. Dr. Quill and his lovely bride, Barbara, are proud grandparents of seven grandchildren, of which he always carries plenty of pictures to share. So, Dr. Quill, welcome to the podcast. That was a little lengthy there, Herb. I'm not sure. The show's over. Thank you for joining us. So, so I understand the, uh, the, uh, supply chain management logistics perspective book is in its 10th edition. Actually it's in 11th. Oh, okay. So I missed one somewhere. It, uh, it adorns a lot of, uh, ex students shelves in their, in their offices. I still have mine, my past version. So, um, but, uh, and it's still, still part of a syllabus of many intro programs at, at, in supply chain. So, um, definitely have a, definitely have a lot to talk about today. Um, Steve, I know you had a, you want to start out with a, any questions you may have. Yeah, so, so we're going to uh, take you back a little bit, uh, Dr. Coyle. Uh, you were the first person to teach a course at Penn State under the label Business Logistics. Um, what what was it like back then? What are your early insights from the history of supply chain, and how did you decide to go into business logistics in the field? And you know, how did how did we get there? Well, when I started, when I joined the faculty in 1961. The program at that time was a part of a, a, a department called Commerce and Management. And we were one of five subdivisions. And actually, the, the title of our program was Trade and Transportation at that time when I joined the faculty. Okay. When, the, when the college was reorganized in 1964-65, that department was split up into five departments. And Bob Paschik, who was my mentor and uh, former department head, had the foresight and wisdom to say we wanted to be a department of business logistics. We were the first department, academic department in the United States or the world that I know of to use that title. But Bob has had a lot of foresight, and he said we should be the department of business logistics. 
And that was very helpful to us. And uh, for many years, as you probably know, Penn State, Michigan State, and Ohio State during the 60s, 70s, and 80s were leading the, the forefront, so to speak, in the, in the logistics area. Nowadays, there's well over 100 schools in the United States offering these programs. But during those formative years, those three big, big ten, big 10 schools were really leading the pack, so to speak, in a lot of different ways. But it was an interesting time, you know, to, to walk into a, a classroom and I had a lot of interesting phone calls from fathers and mothers. My son's or daughter's taking a course. It's called, I think, statistics or something like that. Are there jobs available? <laughs> and I had many a conversation, including one with a father that Irv knows very well, who told his daughter he was she's going to be a forklift truck operator if she became a logistics major. <laughs> yeah, my dad said I was going to be a truck driver, so it worked out well. <laughs> But those are interesting days, and I spend a lot of time on the telephones talking to parents. But one thing that I realized at the outset, when you're starting a brand new program like that, one of the things you have to do is be sure that there are job opportunities for your students. So Bob Paschick and I spend a lot of time visiting companies and talking to them about our students and our programs, giving uh, 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 speeches around the state and so forth. And so uh, anyway, we, we, had a, we had a good time developing that. And uh, it, it was it were interesting years, so to speak. So, so you transitioned. The, uh, the first course you, you taught was called what? Commerce? The first course I taught was, was called uh, transportation management. Transportation. Okay. So when did transportation become logistics or business logistics for that matter? Well, at Penn State, it happened in 1966. Okay, when the college was reorganized, 65, 66. But we, as I said, we were the first department to be labeled that at that particular point in time. So then, you know, parlaying it forward a number of years, then all of a sudden the, the, the name modifies to supply chain management. So, and and I believe that that, that happened into into the 80s and 90s. That was, that was a... You know, number late eighties, nineties, yes. Yeah. Now I always saw that. See, I always saw that as a transition. Okay, when we went from transportation management to logistics, my underlying thought to all that was we were at that point in time able to look at the concept of trade-offs, and we could measure more specifically at that time. You know, what was the trade-off between transportation service, inventory, warehousing, you know, and a number of those other factors. As we got more sophisticated and we got better computerization and able to look further up and down the, the, uh, the, the, the business channels, if you will, it was possible to look at the whole supply chain almost and do more with the, you know, measuring, this, measuring the trade-offs between the different areas and between the different parts of the supply chain. So I look, always looked at it as a natural evolution going from transportation management to logistics to supply chain. And I had many of, of uh, heated discussions with my old buddy uh, from Michigan State <laughs> about that. But anyway, we had some good times together. So your course, so just kind of thinking about the course, you're, you're in, you taught the intro course, so I think was either what called 102 or 301, or, but now it's probably called, still probably well, called. The is at the 100 level, but when the college reorganized all the introductory courses at the 300 level, it became BLOG 301. 
And that was that a that was a required class, right? Or did it not start? It was an option. You could either take BLOC three hundred one, or you could take a, a course in insurance. So you taught that, and I remember you taught that course two different ways. One of them was uh, in in the forum as a, as with large numbers of students. The other one was, I would say, what the precursor of today would be, you know, online was uh, by by videotape. Yes, so, we developed those tapes in the nineteen eighties, and. Uh, if we had the technology that we have today, I could have done a hell of a lot more with those tapes. But those tapes went through three uh, updates or two updates after the original ones. And then I couldn't get funding to do a fourth update. And so we had to let them go. Uh, you know, they were just out of date. But we did some interesting things. And they those tapes were used uh, all over the United States and all, all through parts of Europe and even into Asia. By because university allowed an outfit out in Denver, Colorado, that did a lot of work online to use those tapes, and uh, and they, they they were widely used. And unfortunately, university didn't sign an agreement to get any money for them. But I had some interesting phone calls. One night at uh, two o'clock in the morning, I had a call from Oregon, Eugene, Oregon, and a guy said to me, "You know, I'm in a damn motel in Eugene, Oregon. I turned the TV, and there you were. I, I sort of got rid of you 20 years ago." <laughs> so that, that that actually tees up a pretty good uh, kind of a follow-on question. Supply chain itself becomes global and, and manufacturing and all, and then the, and so now the the trade-offs become a lot bigger, and the expanse of what we need to teach is a lot larger. So, what you know, how did that impact how you taught the course or how you delivered uh, how you, how we taught the students and got them prepared for industry? We had to, as you're suggesting, when we talk about supply chain, we have to look at it, uh, all the pieces that, and and start to look at it globally. And we started to recognize the importance of global supply chains and had to make sure that we incorporate that into our courses and uh, into the many revisions we did on our textbook to make sure we were up to speed with that and making sure our students were well prepared for entering the business world. We always tried to tell our students, as you may, both of you may recall, when you graduate from Penn State, we want you to be hit the deck running and be prepared to make a contribution to the company. We'll help you get to the door. You're going to help yourself get in. But once you get in the door, it's up to you. So you got to be prepared. So, John, um, you know, uh, take us to uh, 1989 um, when you founded the what was then the Center for the Study of Business Logistics. Um, later rebranded as the Center for Supply Chain Research. Um, And obviously this is our podcast that we're hosting today. Um, You know, how how did that come about? Um, You know, what was your intent? Um, You know, what did you see back then? And and what have you seen since in terms of the the center and its impact on the, the industry and the profession? Well, I'll give you a little, some tidbits about that. I, when I, when I, uh, looked at it after being, I stepped down from being associate dean, I saw that there were, we obviously had funded other centers to start up and do research. And so I put in a request for some initial funding to to give us a a fund to start looking at ways that we could do research. And the idea behind those original centers was for the centers to reach out to companies to get funding over time to support the research of faculty. And uh, so we got our $10,000 grant, and about two weeks later, I went down to the Penn Central Railroad, Penn Central Railroad, 
and asked if they'd like to join our center. And they gave me $10,000 as the first, you know, members of the center. And the college immediately rescinded their offer of $10,000. So we were on our own from the beginning. But one thing we had working for us, we always had good relationships with companies. And we knew how to reach out and, and get support. And we knew that one of the critical ingredients to getting support from companies was to supply them with good graduates. So when Skip and Bob Nova and I would go on the road looking for companies to join our center, I say, let's find the companies, let's say in New Jersey, that have hired more than 10 of our students and walk in the door and talk to the person in charge and say, gee, I'm here. I want to check on see how some of our students are doing. And immediately we got a response positive to these companies. They were, they were receptive of us talking about you know, giving contributions, particularly Nabisco. I mean, <laughs> Joe Andreski used to hire sometimes tw- 12 of our students in the summer. He said, we got more work out of those 12 students than we get out of a, a consulting company, you know. So you're, you're, you're our students and that work for these companies as interns and permanent graduates, they were the basis of their ability to attract companies to join the center. So, John, you mentioned uh, a couple of, I think, important people in the in the uh, evolution of the center, you mentioned uh, Bob Novak, who who's still here at Penn State as a faculty member, and you also remember, mentioned. Remember, I taught him everything he knows. <laughs> oh, so that's the reason why. Okay, <laughs> I'll remind him of that when I see him next. <laughs> yeah, and then you also mentioned uh, Skip. So, who who John is talking about here is uh, Dr. William Grenoble, who everybody refers to as Skip. That's what everybody calls him. Um, but can you talk a little bit about the the evolution of the center from that early founding in the in the late 80s to, you know, uh, the 90s and the 2000s, you know, and, and all the way up to interesting sidelines of that. When we decided we wanted the center and I, I thought, you know, I really need to have somebody that can help me because I was teaching full time, doing my faculty athletic representative stuff and on a bunch of committees. And I said, I, ca- I can't take on being a, a full time director of a center. I need some help. So uh, one of the faculty members at the time recommended Skip, who was in the PhD program. So I approached Skip about the possibility of becoming an associate director of the center. And we had to figure out some way of financing his salary because I, I wasn't getting any money from the, the college. So we, uh, the good news for me is Skip Grenoble was one of the best and most informed and and just just a great person to work with, and and of course Bob Novak also. So the three of us really did a lot of scrambling and hard work, work getting companies to try to join our center and provide us with some funds. And then we also decided we needed to f- find some other ways. And one of the ways we st- one of the things we did is we started offering educational programs on our own, and we got then we got that big Marine Corps contract. Uh, that was a, a you know a lifesaver, and, and we revitalized all the logistics programs, logistics functions of the Marine Corps, and that gave us a you know a, a flow of funds. And then one of our deans found out about the flow of funds coming in through the other another avenue of the university and started to tap us, our sources. But anyway, it was an interesting time, and we got a lot of fun together. But the executive programs part of the offering educational programs, as you know. Is a, is a key piece of our ability to make this center go because those relationships you develop with companies are, are critical in a lot of different ways. I think it's always been a, uh, 
a Penn State tradition uh, to build a great community. As, as far as the people that you mentioned, uh, and even even to students past and present, are still a great connectivity to the, to the individuals and, and a great connectivity to the department. So just a lot of accessibility of the, the, the research and the, and, the, and the instructors to, to the students and, and to the alumni. So it's always been a very important part of keeping uh, Penn State uh, Penn State's uh, supply chain at, uh, program at the top of its industry. So, yeah. You know, it, it was funny when I think about <clears throat> the way um, Dr. Coyle is describing um, the evolution of knowledge transfer or executive education. And I think back on, John, you were talking about those early videotapes that you created that got distributed all over the world. And I think, as you know, I think as Irv knows as well as today, you know, we run uh, twice a month courses in the virtual space for all of our center sponsors. And so, you know, we're, we're typically educating literally hundreds of people every two weeks on different supply chain topics. So it's like kind of what goes around comes around. It used to be VHS tapes that got sent around in the mail and now it's the internet, but it's still a key component of what we do here. And I keep thinking about if we had the internet when Irv was in school and you were in school, we would have really killed them all. <laughs> We would dominate the world. <laughs> I don't know if you'd ever seen me in class if that were the case. Yeah, uh, but uh, so so just kind of shifting gears, if it's okay to to present. Uh, obviously, the, the the pandemic has made a lot of you know a lot of changes in our in our lives, and and um, it used to be that no one knew what supply chain was, and you had to explain it to them. And now it's basically just the the number one, you know, front page story on, on in the press. So. Take us through uh, what you're, you know, this this evolution and where we are today as it relates to supply chain being front and center in in all of our lives. Well, the, the fact that it's so widely known is like, just just like the, a breath of fresh air and a miracle almost that happened. So that people, when you used to talk about logistics, sometimes people were, as I said, were you talking about statistics or is that some disease you're talking about? So we, the the term wasn't really widely known, widely accepted. And so as we evolved through the 70s and the 80s and 90s, we obviously were able to you know, spread the word and the Council of Logistics Management got bigger and better, well and better known. But now in this era, you can't talk to anybody and without them knowing the term supply chain. They're not really sure what it means, I don't think, but they bandy it about all the time. So it's... <laughs> It's, it's it's hard to it's just hard it would be hard to me to, to imagine this would be the case even even as recently as 1990 but here we are and supply chains a part of our lexicon if you will yeah it's funny because everywhere everywhere that somebody goes and the shelves are empty I get a call and it, it's like it, it it's like uh, it I I think people people are interested in the supply chain being the problem they don't care about the reasons why but they know it's a problem so. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Bob Novak used to use the analogy in class that logistics is kind of like the water in your, your tap. It's As long as you can turn it on and it flows, you're happy as hell. But if you turn it on and it doesn't come on, then you really start to worry. And that's like the supply chain. I mean, as long as it's working well, everybody's happy. The shelves are full, but now they're not. And they're starting to say, what is, where, where is, where's everything? Why aren't, we, why aren't we getting it now? You know? Of course, and they don't realize what's happened with the globalization and how dependent we are in other countries for supplying things that were appear on our shelves, particularly China, but there are other countries too. And all of a sudden, if your global supply chain shut down, you've got big time problems. 
what, what do you think the COVID-19 is going to, uh, as far as what are the lasting um, things we're going to see that, are, that affect the supply chain due to some of the pandemic changes that we've seen? Well, from, from a personnel point of view, you, you're, you are more involved with this than I am, but I, I think we're going to see a, a workforce that's going to expect to work from home uh, part of the time at least. And that, that'll, of uh, course, have some effect on the supply chain. But I think the supply chain is, you know, versatile and vibrant enough that they can handle people working from home. I don't see that as a, a major problem with the supply chain. But I think that I think personally think, and I could be wrong about this, we're going to have to start looking at reshoring, if you will, doing more domestically than we have in the past, uh, and, and maybe refurbishing some of the, the businesses that we've neglected over the last 30 years bring back the, the inner strength of our economy to make it more independent, if you will, that we can survive these kinds of problems in the future. That's going to take a lot of doing, uh, but I think we can do it. So, John, um, you know, the one common theme that I hear from a lot of people is that the pandemic accelerated these trends that have been going on for a few years anyway, but now things have just speeded up. And I think about things like uh, e-commerce and digitalization. You mentioned reshoring, which would certainly be on the list. What do you see, you know, as the future of supply chain? And, and, and you know, be as futuristic as you want to be. You can say, well, I see this, you know, this stuff happen in the next three to five years. But maybe, you know, maybe you want to be, you know, a prognosticator and say, here's what I think things are going to look like in five, seven and 10 years. What do you, what do you see as the trends that are going to continue and the things are going to accelerate and things that maybe aren't even happening yet that we're going to see? Well, remember, we have to remember that the supply chain is moving stuff, you know, and we'll never, we can't replace that. We still, in the long run, we got to move the stuff. And so what we're going to be seeing, I think, is ways of one, moving the stuff more efficiently and more effectively and more visibly, if you will, so that we have a better tighter control of the supply chain. So I think that's where the emphasis will be in the future for the for the supply chain. But we're also going to have people able to work. They don't have to come to the office. Uh, we're going to see more reliance, I think, in our warehouses on, on robots and mechanization. We're going to reduce the number of people that are directly touching the goods. You see that already. Uh, that's happened with COVID, but it's going to continue to grow as companies see the opportunities to to. Uh, use that automation, use that those robots. We've been talking about, you know, the last edition of the textbook, we had a, a big section in there about some of the things you're hearing about now, robotics, uh, d- drones being used for ch- looking at things. So there's going to be more emphasis on technology to replace people and do things more efficiently. And, and of course, the, the, the ability we have with our computers and, and, and data sharing nowadays will also be beneficial. So I think we'll we'll do more with less people. So speaking of moving stuff, do you um, do you see a, a near or short term future where we're going to see uh, autonomous vehicles as being part of the lexicon stuff that we see day to day? I think we see it already. You know, that there's going to be autonomous vehicles, and I think in the initial and probably initially we're going to see probably see more. Uh, I was reading an article recently about trucks on the, the interstate may be running in tandem like trains 
two trailers joined together, you could have one driver in the front trailer and have 10 trailers behind it on some of the, not on the interstates in the, in the east, but on the interstates in the, in the west. So we're, we're gonna, there's going to be an emphasis on doing more with less people power or, or input. I, I think there's no question about that. And that, that's, I think, uh, because of the things we're experiencing with COVID. But, you know, if we look at our, uh, if you look at some of the statistics as far as our, our population is concerned, we have fewer younger people, unless we open the floodgates, so to speak, to bring people from other countries. But we need to be very cognizant of the, our ability to take advantage of, of all this technology to do things with fewer people. Which means we need smarter business, smarter graduates from our schools. So, <laughs> yeah, and I guess at that point in time, uh, the supply chain professional that would be graduating college today um, has a different, probably almost has a different set of skills needed than probably the ones that have graduated like thirty years ago. So, yes. yeah. So, um, and what do you think the the number one? If you were to say that the the one the most important skill that a that a graduate from supply chain program needs to have in order to make this change over the next ten to fifteen years, what do you think that would be? Technology, yeah, familiarity with with technology, and uh, being able to be the, uh, very proficient with the computer. I mean, those are things that are going to change. But look at where people go nowadays. In the old days, when we graduated students, they were going to work for U.S. Steel and Bethlehem Steel, and you know companies like that. Now, you know, now we have supply chain majors going to work for banks and for hospitals. And, you know, so the whole set of opportunities for, for supply chain majors have been, has been changing since the nineties and it's, it's getting getting more so. So all we're going to, we're going to be a great need for people in the supply chain area, but they're going to have to be technically savvy, computer savvy, but also they're going to know how to have to work with people. Okay. That's a very important ingredient, I think, for for supply chain working with people. Yeah, that doesn't go away, right? That's a constant. So, so I just start as, as you're talking about like thinking 15 years out. I just think about all the infrastructure changes that have to happen over those next 15 years, mm-hmm. and uh, and just the fact we're going to have to cycle through a lot of things as far as to be able to get to an infrastructure that allows us to kind of scale differently than what we have in the past. Like you were talking about the East and the ability to run 10, 10 vehicles together. Uh, it's just, it just, there's a lot of changes that have to occur to, to enable this um, as it relates to infrastructure. So just a comment there, not a, not a question. Yeah, the yeah particularly in the East, that infrastructure is going to change, but, but there, you know, there's opportunities to do more. You see, you see changes happening in the railroad industry that I think can have some, some benefits as, as we improve that technology and do more. Uh, so I don't, we'll have to talk to Dr. Spolsky about that. <laughs> so, so Dr. Coyle, what are some of the questions that Irv and I didn't ask you that you thought, well, these guys just aren't smart enough to ask that question. <clears throat> um, but you know, what are some of the things that are top of your mind that, you know, we we're, we're, this is like, this is like Luke Skywalker talking to Yoda, right? Talking to the master. So, you know, um, what what are some of the things that we didn't ask you? You think are pertinent to um, to the audience that they really need well, to hear? I, I think we've run the gamut with, between the, the three of us with touching on the major things. We have to look at this whole thing of this whole concept of globalization. Where is it going to go in the future, and what's it going to mean for our supply chain systems? 
we, we dance around a little bit with all the problems we're having with, with China, for example, at the present time. Uh, how are we going to revitalize our own economy, to, so to speak, to do more for ourselves? How are we going to incorporate the underdeveloped countries and get them into being part of the supply chain? That's a, that's a, a, you know, a potential thing that could be a big, big deal in the future. And I don't know that we were spending enough time in, in you know, from the executive point of view, if you will, or from a political point of view, thinking about how we can capitalize on that. And then the whole thing about technology, it's it's changing rapidly and we need to be on top of that. How many students do you think you personally educated over the course of your academic career? You know, it's hard. You know, somebody asked me that question. There were some years when I taught over 2,000 students. My guess it's well over 100,000, you know. It, uh, some one here's what here's a number for here's something for you. One of my good friends was the registrar at Penn State, and he told me, John, you taught more students than any other professor in the history of Penn State. Bar none, he said. You 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 taught more. <laughs> so. Well, I think that's a pretty good way to as as as. Um, our audience may know, Irv and I are a subset and N of two of those hundreds of thousands of men and women who were educated by uh, Dr. Coyle. Um, We could not be more grateful. As I I mentioned, when I took the position here at the Center for Supply Chain Research in my introductory session, that I was standing on the shoulders of giants uh, with Dr. Coyle and Dr. Grenoble as my predecessors. Um, And I I meant that sincerely. I truly feel that. John, on behalf of... um, can I make one more comment? You can, of course. Okay, sir. here's my, my my parting shot. I used to always get get uh, comment from some of my fellow faculty members. Why, as a full professor, are you still teaching classes in the forum building for 400 students? I said I came into this profession because I wanted to teach, and what could be more challenging than teach an introductory course to sophomores, juniors? in an area they don't know much about. Why should you delegate that to graduate students? So I always said a full professor would have been there to teach that course. And I'd love to teach in the forum. I, I enjoy it every day that I talk. I think somebody told me that, that you have a job, a career, um, and you have a, an avocation. And an avocation is something that you know you, you just love that you you lose your time in and you get excited about it. And for many like myself and Steve, that you really helped us find our, our calling. And, 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 and to that, you know, we thank you for, for allowing us, to, you know, our, an opportunity to build great careers. Thanks for listening to the Penn State Supply Chain Podcast, brought to you by the Center for Supply Chain Research at Penn State. For information about our sponsorship opportunities, research needs, and professional development offerings, please visit smeal.psu.edu forward slash CSCR.